Well, welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is January 15, 2023, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's a privilege to be joined by members of the Toronto, Calgary, and Chicago philosophy meetup groups. Whether you have been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. To contribute your thoughts, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom. To keep the discussion flowing and ensure everyone has a chance to speak, I'll call on you in the order that hands are raised, using first name only. I've suggested three themes and excerpts from today's reading, which take us from the beginning to 27C of Plato's Philebus. And these are posted on the shared drive linked to the event notice on meetup.com. We can focus on these or any of the other themes, and for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. As we exchange thoughts on today's reading, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. So this is the first of three sessions that we will do on the Philebus. When we discussed the Philebus a year ago, I didn't appreciate a very important aspect of it, which is the dialogue's relationship to things when things are defined as objects of thought. Things as objects of thought were a focus of our recent series on the Cratylus, as well as our previous episode on the Greater Hippias, and they will feature again today. The Philebus says a great deal about the objects of our thoughts, particularly the logic of their numbers and the order of their connections. As such, it strikes me that the Philebus makes a fundamental point about the logical circuitry and memory function of the human mind in the synapses that connect the 90 billion neurons in our brains. Synapses are the tiny gaps of potential through which neurons exchange signals. They contain nothing physical that we can observe, but provide us with the capacity of observation. The Philebus revolves around the debate of which of two extremes, pleasure or knowledge, is good for living beings. An early consensus emerges that the good cannot be found only in one or the other extreme, and therefore a mixture of both pleasure and knowledge is judged to be good. The problem of proportionality then arises. What is the correct ratio of each in the combination of both? The answer, Socrates says, requires knowledge and its memory of cause and effect to allow for calculation of future probabilities. Memory plays a significant role in this dialogue, and modern physics points to memory not just as a human function, but one of unlimited extent in the universe that governs with the law of conservation of information. As we'll see today, the title character named Philebus focuses only on the present and appears unable to calculate the varying probabilities of future pleasures. Protarchus, who tries to advance Philebus's position, initially proposes that everything named pleasure is equally good, until Socrates points out the contradictions in pleasures that vary by type and individual. Socrates makes the point that pleasure and every other thing consists of both limits and a measure of the unlimited. While pleasure, like color or vocal sounds, is a category with unlimited potential in its many effects, the name pleasure does not signify a likeness of its varying causes. Although Philebus appears to have a one-track mind on the matter, Protarchus proves more amenable to the logic of cause and effect that Socrates presents. As we learned in our three sessions on Plato's Cratylus, a name is tricky. A name like pleasure is prone to varying interpretations when we don't search for the fundamental limits that differentiate the thing that the name represents from all other things. In the Philebus, Socrates points to the method by which we can distinguish the one from the many things that a name can symbolize, and thereby judge the thing's probabilities independently of other things. 
In this respect, memory is important to test limits and to find the common character of the limited and unlimited points that are made at 17D and 26D in the dialogue. The method necessarily involves numbering calculation, which Socrates stated in the Republic is the first order of knowledge for a philosopher. The reason for this may be most clearly summarized by his proposition in the Theotetus that there is no thing which, in itself, is just one thing. I thought we could begin today's discussion with this proposition. Can anyone dispute this statement and present to us a thing that is unchanging and has no other quality than what its name suggests? For example, a human who is neither tall nor short, or water that is neither cold nor warm, or one pleasure that is neither greater nor less than another. For that matter, is the measure of eudaimonia, or happiness, which some say is the purpose of philosophy, a thing that is universally agreed, or, like pleasure, are the limits of happiness variable? So I'll read what Socrates says about the one and the many at 17d to e, and then let's take up this question. Let me just share the screen here, and I'll put that selection on the screen, and we can read it together. So this is 17d to e, where Socrates is speaking, he starts speaking about knowledge of the art of music. And he says, but will you be competent, my friend, once you have learned how many intervals there are in high pitch and low pitch, what character they have, by what notes the intervals are defined, and the kinds of combinations they form, all of which our forebears have discovered and left to us, their successors, together with the names of those modes of harmony. And again, the motions of the body display other and similar characteristics of this kind, which they say should be measured by numbers and called rhythms and meters. So at the same time, they have made us realize that every investigation should search for the one and the many. For when you have mastered these things in this way, then you have acquired expertise there. And when you have grasped the unity of any of the other things there are, you have become wise about that. The boundless multitude, however, in any and every kind of subject leaves you in boundless ignorance and makes you count for nothing and amount to nothing since you have never worked out the amount and number of anything at all. So I wanted to start with that and just see what we think about the proposition that I mentioned from the Theotetus, that there is no thing that in itself is just one thing. And I'm wondering if there is anybody who can find an example of something that indicates that that's not true. And the statement that we just read about the boundless multitude, you know, so do we have to always look for several things at the same time? And then as Socrates says, keep dividing things down until we find the fundamental essence of one thing. There's a part in 15d to 16a. And in here, Socrates says that by making the point that it is through discourse that the same thing flits around, becoming one and many in all sorts of ways, in whatever it may be that is said at any time, both long ago and now. And this will never come to an end, nor has it just begun, but it seems to me that this is an immortal and ageless condition that comes to us with discourse. So in here he's saying that when we speak, there is differences in, in differences in meaning and differences in interpretation. He goes on, whoever among the young first gets a taste of it is as pleased as if he had found a treasure of wisdom. He is quite beside himself with pleasure and revels in moving every statement now turning it to one side and rolling it up into one, then again unrolling it and dividing it up. He thereby involves first and foremost himself in confusion, but then also whatever others happen to be nearby, be they younger or older or of the same age, sparing neither his father nor his mother nor anyone else who might listen to him. He would almost try it on other creatures, not only on human beings, since he would certainly not spare any foreigner, 
if only he could find an interpreter somewhere. So it's this question of interpretation, isn't it? It's a question of when we use a term like human, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean at one particular time? What does it mean at all times? Uh, and I think this is really the important part about this dialogue is it's trying to understand the difference between the timeless meaning of something and the meaning and the differing varying meanings of things at any particular time. And there's quite a bit of kind of mathematical and geometric principles, I think, that Plato brings into this dialogue. And one of those is mentioned in this little section that I just read in the words, rolling it up into one, and then again, unrolling it and dividing it up. So it's almost as if we're always dividing things up uh, or trying to divide things up when we talk about something to find the essence or the common, um, there's a word, there's a term a bit later on, the common character. The common character was in 26D. We look for the common character of something. I'm just wondering in your experience whether this is something that we always do, or can you think of any one thing that is just one thing on its own and not something else? I guess what we're trying to get here is the, the question of whether we think that everything consists of both limits and some unlimited or timeless element. Well, we'll take Steve and then Janice. Steve. Uh, hello. Thank you uh, for uh, hosting this uh, to start with. You're welcome. I think it's just, uh, to me, it seems like a uh, perspective. You could say everything is divided, but you could also say there's no division at all. You know, how can you say that something has an inherent existence? It's like we're an essence. It's like any essence that you define is conditioned upon it, its relationship to something else. So mm -hmm. the the idea that there can be a, a differentiated essence is, you know, just one uh, set of convictions or uh, contrivances. But you could just take the opposite uh, point of views, like say a Parmenides, where everything is is one. There is no there is no division. So it's just a, uh, a perspective on on how you're looking and uh, what you're interested in. If you're interested in uh, you're looking at a car and you call it a car, but if you're interested in uh, the spark plug or you know the parts, then then you're you're separating it in the parts. But uh, you know where where's the dividing line between where the spark plug is no longer part of the car? That was all I had to say. Thank you, Ken. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. And you raised the question of whether there's an inherent essence. I think was your term. And you talked about things being conditional on their relationship to other things. And I think that's I think part of what Plato is trying to say here with the limited. Uh, when we establish the limits of any one thing we have to separate those from the limits of every other thing. And so there is that kind of conditional relationship of one thing to another, but we have to kind of determine where those divisions are, you know, your spark plug example, you know, where does the spark plug end and where, is, where does the car begin? You know, they're two different things, but they're part of one whole thing, which is the vehicle. And so maybe that's part of what he's trying to get at here is to find this Maybe it's it's this kind of temporary essence of things. You know, we live in this physical universe that is in this constant state of change. Everything physical starts in a state of order and then winds up in entropy, which is a state of maximum disorder. So there's always this change going on. And the limits of everything are changing. But 
there's a limit of the thing, the, the basic object of thought, does that actually tie to something more universal, something more timeless, something that I think the terms are, uh, the term is, and we'll, we'll see it in one of the readings, something that admits no further generation or destruction, you know, is there kind of that timeless essence of a thing? So that's a good point. Let's let's discuss that and and see what uh, we think of that. And if we can think of more examples, I mean, your car example was a good one. And let's see if we can come up with any more examples. We'll go to Janice and then Darren and then James. Janice. Hi, good afternoon. Hi. Um, I, when we first started uh, reading this, what first thing that came to my mind is this concept that I myself have been racking with for, for a little while is the concept of all for one and one for all it's so to me it's like is there actually a separation do we just think that there is a perceived separation and then although there is the other side is that we keep dividing which means ourselves keep dividing you know these uh, atomic principles keep dividing they go and get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller but at the same time even those things get smaller and smaller and smaller we need that in order to come back to be the whole. So for me, it's, again, I, I'm wrestling with, is no man an island, or that phrase, and like, yeah, we are probably one, and then we're, but we're also many. So again, this is something I've been wrestling with myself, but, but the, the words all for one and one for all, we have one cell that needs many to work, but without that one cell, the many may not work. So that this is my take, my view, uh, my perception of what we're talking about right now. Well, thank you. And that, that's an interesting, actually, uh, interesting connection maybe to Parmenides, which Steve mentioned, because the conclusion of the Parmenides was, if the one is not, then nothing is. The one was the essential thing that had to exist. And then anything can emerge from that one but the one thing had to, had to be there to start off with and if that one thing was not there then no other thing could exist so it kind of almost talks about a fractioning process you know that everything that emerges in space and time through the course of time is kind of a fraction of one entire thing you know and then maybe that we could take that right back to the universe itself and the question that I've asked before, is there one universe or a multiverse? If it's a multiverse, is it a, what is it a multitude of? And we have to just continually go back to find that one thing that we are, everything is tied to. It's like a root to everything. Which is what brings you, um, when, when I talk about different uh, parallel lives, in my head, we shouldn't have parallel lives because we're just, that means we're just being fragmented, we're fragmented. So in me, it, I'm thinking that we need to bring back whatever those parallel lives are and bring them back into the one person, which is me, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever I could be, the one, the source of the divinity, if you would call it, and which means the divinity at one time was one, but then fragmented to create all these different things. But there still is just that one. Like you said, the root is just mm -hmm. that one. So right. to me, I believe you can't, you, there shouldn't be parallel lives. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And, and maybe it's then a question of probabilities. You know, each one of us is a bundle of probabilities, but at any one time, I think what you're saying is we are only one thing, but we always have all of these other probabilities attached to us. So maybe I think probabilities is very much in this dialogue and we can talk about that. So thank you, Janice. We'll go to James and then Darren. Yeah, I was uh, thinking about the idea of reducing things 
so that you have only one thing. And I was thinking about the game of Chinese checkers, where you've got a series of marbles and you win the game when you get the last one marble in the opposite triangle. So I would say marbles would be an example of one thing that is unique to itself. I'm just throwing that out for discussion because I was trying to think of something that can't be uh, divided and I don't think you can divide a marble. A marble is a singular unit. Interesting analogy. And, and certainly, you know, again, the use of analogy is something that Plato does all the time because we can understand these things sometimes by the visual. And so as you were talking about the Chinese checkers, I visualize those marbles and it makes me actually think about the quantum or the quanta in the universe. You know, each quanta may be like one of those marbles in Chinese checkers. Each quantum is the same as every other quantum. And a quantum is the minimum packet of energy in the universe that can cause change or be changed. And so if we think of each quantum as one of those marbles, then maybe that's an analogy that's that's helpful to to understand. But how does all of that come together? And then I think the, the question in this dialogue becomes, what's the ratio? So, you know, if we have a bunch of marbles and say each marble represents a different type of pleasure, which is, you know, the key question in this dialogue is the life of pleasure or the life of knowledge good. If each marble represents a type of pleasure, then what ratio of marbles mixes in with the ratio of knowledge to make a good life? So maybe that's an analogy we can consider is, is the, the marbles and Chinese checkers. So thank you. And we'll go to Darren. All right. So um, regarding this question, uh, whether there's, I think you asked any, if there's anything that's one thing on its own and nothing else. Right. To me, what's kind of interesting about this dialogue is that it might be flagging different approaches to this problem. Because one person who like certainly <laughs> comes through in the dialogue, who certainly thinks that there is one thing on its own and nothing else, at least at the beginning, is our Philippus and Protarchus. So I just want to read this. I think this shows it very well um, that their attitude towards pleasure is that it is this one thing on its own and nothing else. At least this is their beginning position. So at 12e, so we see that you know they're debating pleasure versus knowledge. And then Socrates wants to talk about the nature of pleasure and the nature of knowledge. So it's like, in order to do that, let's talk about different kinds of pleasure. And then Protarchus is like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I don't want to talk about different kinds of pleasure. What do you mean there are better or worse pleasures? Mm -hmm. So this is what he says at uh, 12e. Well, yes, Socrates, the pleasures come from opposite things, but they are not at all opposed to one another. For how could pleasure not be of all things most like pleasure? How could that thing not be most like itself? So they actually go on for this, you know, for like a page. Because <laughs> yeah. um, Socrates insists on making distinctions and the Protarchus insists on coming back to this point because Socrates wants to say there are better or worse pleasures or different kinds of pleasures. And Protarchus is like, well, no, if it's pleasure, it's pleasure. What do you mean there? You know, pleasure is pleasure. You know, there's no <laughs> worse or better or worse. So that seems to be actually one of the ways to approach this problem. I don't think it's the only way. Okay, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. <laughs> there's a lot. Let me try to like say a little bit more about... Um, Plutarchus's own approach. So Socrates calls this kind of argumentation near that same section, he says, is a kind of argument which makes a unity of all things that are most opposed. And then on the next page, so this is at 14a now, he says something interesting about using this kind of argument. He says that this way of combining all things, so like all pleasure is just pleasure and all knowledge is knowledge and you can't really make distinctions or people like Philippus will object to making distinctions. 
So he says this would cause their whole discussion to come to an end like that of a fairy tale with us kept safe and sound through some absurdity. And then he, he goes on to talk a bit more about this approach to argumentation. A lot in this dialogue reminds me of previous dialogues. There's so many hints of things and even like phrasing that comes from previous dialogues mm -hmm. that I found absolutely fascinating. So maybe I'll get into that later. But here, this is one of the reminders, this kind of um, paradox that people like to use in argumentation that sort of stops argument, that people they just sort of keeps us stuck. And it keeps mm -hmm. us, and here he says, it keeps us safe and sound. So mm -hmm. maybe people like these kinds of arguments because it keeps stops us from thinking. So what this reminds me of is Amino's paradox. I think Socrates says the same thing there about how this paradox about learning that Mino presents, you know, how, how is it possible to learn anything? Oh, we're stuck in this paradox. And I think Socrates has this sort of same, same kind of attitude there too, to this paradox that keeps us stuck. And he says here, discussion will come to an end. And so maybe I'll just wrap up with just one more point, which is that, so he actually says here, so this is a 14D and he says that the many are one and the one many are amazing statements and can easily be disputed whichever side of the two one may want to defend. He also says those puzzles about the one and many that have become commonplace. So this way of approaching this argument, actually, that everything is one or some other people will say like everything is infinitely many. He says these are actually commonplace arguments at the time. So this is the first time I've ever, ever read this in the Plato dialogue. So this is a fascinating historical sort of point. So he says they are agreed by everybody, so to speak, to be no longer even worth touching. They're considered childish and trivial, but a serious impediment to argument if one takes them on. So this, uh, so the last point I want to make, I guess, is that I feel like Socrates is taking an interesting problem or interesting approach to this problem of, I guess we might call it oneness, that everything is just one thing on its own and nothing else. And that he, he seems to be suggesting that it's, it's become this popular form of argument. Maybe Parmenides popularized it or, pe or other people popularized it after Parmenides. And then like people are just like, like to argue, oh, isn't, isn't it interesting? Everything, all pleasure is pleasure and there's no distinctions. And then, you know, someone might argue the opposite and they just go back and forth. And, you know, philosophy doesn't really get anywhere. We're just stuck in this, oh, is, is the many one or is the one many? And so I, I find this interesting like attitude that Socrates seems to present here that it's become like a fairy tale. It's become it's devolved in this absurdity. And we need to sort of move beyond this. I, so I think there is something to this problem that James is presenting us. But I think, as we see later on in the reading this week, I think Socrates is going to present a new way of approaching this problem, which will help us advance the problem. But he's definitely in the beginning part of the reading, he's like saying there is a very unproductive way of approaching the problem of oneness, which actually... I feel like actually maybe Parmenides, maybe it's a critique of Parmenides' approach. I know this is controversial, but I feel like maybe the dialogue Parmenides was actually a bit satirical of Parmenides. So he keeps going back between one and how one becomes everything. But I think Socrates is actually presenting maybe a kind of intervention here about a different kind of method. But anyway, I'll just stop there. Well, thank you. Yeah, and, and lots to think about there. Certainly you you called attention to the question or the the challenge of what, what uh, both... Philobus and Protarchus start by saying is that all pleasures are the same. Pleasure is pleasure and pleasure is, in, is, in, is inherently good. Uh, but pleasure as a category, Socrates says, is one thing, but individual pleasures are many. So, uh, and he uses the analogy here of colors. And I'll just, you know, this is the part that I have here on the screen. Socrates says, just as color is more like color, 
So you, you, he says, really, you surprise me. Colors certainly won't differ insofar as every one of them is a color, but we all know that black is not only different from white, but is in fact its very opposite. And shape is most like shape in the same way. For shape is all one in genus, but some of its parts are absolutely opposite to one another. And others differ in innumerable ways. And we will discover many other such cases. So don't rely on this argument, which makes a unity of all things that are most opposed. I'm afraid we will find there are some pleasures that are contrary to others. And then he goes, uh, he, there's a part in, I don't think I, I didn't highlight this for reading, but it's in 12C. Socrates talks about, actually, maybe I do have it on the screen here. Yeah, I do. This is the part where he says, I always feel a more than human dread over what names to use for the gods. So here he's talking about names and we apply names to things and things are objects of thought. So, you know, how do you name a god? Because the god is everything. And he says it surpasses the greatest fear. So now I address Aphrodite by whatever title pleases her. But as to pleasure, I know that it is complex. And just as I said, we must make it our starting point and consider carefully what sort of nature it has. If one just goes by the name, it is one single thing. But in fact, it comes in many forms that are in some way even quite unlike each other. Think about it. We say that a debauched person gets pleasure, as well as that a sober-minded person takes pleasure in his very sobriety. Again, we say that a fool, though full of foolish opinions and hopes, gets pleasure. But likewise, a wise man takes pleasure in his wisdom. But surely anyone who said in either case that these pleasures are like one another would rightly be regarded as a fool. So pleasure as a category might be one thing, and maybe it has one type of effect, but certainly many different causes and manifests in many different ways. And so maybe this is kind of the one in the many that we're chasing around here. Uh, so thanks for that. And uh, we'll go to Federico. Welcome. Hello. Um, just wanted to say that I'm not sure what Plato is going about is really about the same debate about uh, that uh, Parmenides and Heraclitus um, are debating. This is because at a certain point, uh, he, um, he says that these uh, um, debates about um, the man is one and one is many are amazing and commonplace. But then he says uh, a little bit later, maybe I can... Uh, I can find it. Um, he says, but that's not what I want to talk about. And the point I want to go about is about what I guess I haven't read the whole dialogue yet. This problem, but about forms only. Uh, I found the point and it's uh, 15a. And Socrates says, when my young friend, the one is not taken from the things that come to be or perish, as we have just done in our example. For that is where the sort of one belongs, but we were just discussing. He goes on for a bit, but at a certain point says, but when someone tries to posit men as one, and one tries to divide these unities, this uh, gives rise to contro con con controversy. I'm not mm -hmm. sure how you pronounce that in English, I'm sorry. Controversy, yeah. Um, okay. So it seems to me that it's, only a debate about forms, so it's kind of more abstract than the debate that Parmenides uh, is going about, it seems to me. Hmm. Well, thank you. And, and you, you called, or you highlighted this particular section that I have on the screen, and maybe this is something that we can actually read together. 
but certainly I think maybe Parmenides, the dialogue Parmenides is more on an abstract level, whereas this dialogue, uh, the Philebus is actually trying to take that universal abstraction and put it in a very real context of how the mind actually works in dividing things up and distinguishing one thing from another, but not just distinguishing one thing from another, actually determining the ratio of things that we combine. Because they, they arrive at this conclusion very early in the dialogue that the best life or the good life is a life that is not just purely pleasure, and it's not just a life purely of knowledge. They go through, you know, they kind of analyze it and they decide, well, no, if if you had a life of pure pleasure, you would actually have no memory of what it was that made you feel pleasure. One pleasure would seem the same as another, and then it wouldn't be a pleasure anymore. And then they thought, well, you know, if you had a life of knowledge, but no pleasure, would anybody really want that? And they said, no. So the good consists in a combination of several things. In this case, in this debate, good consists of pleasure and knowledge. And you, we then need to establish a ratio of one to the other in this mix. And so that's where they go on in the part that we'll look at in two weeks. They go on to determine how that ratio comes together and what gets the second prize. If the life of knowledge or the life of pure pleasure is neither of those is good, then what gets second place? You know, they decide the mixture is good, but what gets second place? So that's a point that's certainly worth uh, considering. So thank you for that. And um, Darren. I just want to bring a quick point into the discussion uh, regarding Protarchus and his, and his approach to argumentation here. I, I got this from the introduction to the uh, Hackett edition. So the intro says that uh, Protarchus, he's addressed at 19b as a son of Callias, who is a very rich Athenian, and in the Apology 20a, uh, to have spent more than anyone else on the sophists. And uh, he seems to speak, and at 58a to b, he seems to speak as a respectful admirer of Gorgias, who is like one of the greater, greatest, greater or greatest sophists. So it's interesting. So this was a very helpful and interesting that Hackett, the editors who bring this up, this uh, historical context, because so Protar we know Protarchus, if he's not, he's, we're not, we don't know if he is a sophist, but he's definitely because his father was a great admirer of the sophists and the greatest sophists and spent a ton of his money on the sophists more than anyone else in fact so it seems like protarchus must have been influenced as a son of callias by the sophistic ideas and argumentation so i'll uh, just to bring this more uh, back centrally to the dialogue though so later on i couldn't find this but someone knows where it is in the reading today let me <laughs> you may want to you can inform us but he, he sort of outright calls implicitly uh, Protarchus' way of argumentation heuristic, and then the alternative method he's going to present, which we haven't really discussed yet, as dialectical. And he also says, uh, so um, So this close to the section of the music you brought up earlier, James, he says that neither knowing like that all things are one, the one or the unlimited, the unlimited or its unity, he says neither knowing those things yet makes us knowledgeable about anything. So I thought that was another interesting thing. So the suggestion is you can keep arguing in this way. And apparently this was historically, as we saw in this dialogue, that this is, had become a very popular way of arguing, like go bandying back and forth between, oh, everything is in flux and everything is infinite. And no, but everything is one. <laughs> and apparently, you know, it's become sort of this, like, almost like a, you know, he, he was he was saying it's like almost become like a game or trivial and childish 
that people are like like to argue this way about everything. But as we see, it doesn't get us anywhere. It just means that all pleasure is one and pleasure is pleasure. And how can you say there's bad pleasure? It's all pleasure is pleasure. So how can it be bad? So yeah, I just thought I'll bring this aspect of sophistry and heuristics up. And maybe just a final observation is that I don't think that Maybe this is my more of my personal opinion at the moment of reading. I haven't finished reading the dialogue. I've only read the assigned reading for today. I don't think he's saying that these ideas of unity or the unlimited are not necessary to knowledge or to knowing. But just having those things don't give us enough to have actually knowledge about anything. They're sort of like the basic apparatus in our minds. Maybe what you were talking about earlier, James, about how part of knowing things is like from our mind. And maybe they're what maybe they're kind of forms or something at a certain point in this dialogue they're called like the structure i think it's flagged as like the structure of the universe or something like that but when people get stuck in this idea of oh, oh everything is flux or everything is one if you only debate that way it just becomes heuristic it becomes like this kind of sophistry where you you, you seem to be making clever or deep or profound arguments but you're just going back and forth forever and Socrates and or Plato wants to push us forward. And it's interesting that this is a late dialogue. Maybe Plato got impatient. He's like, I'm just going to lay this out, <laughs> how to make progress in philosophy. So, yeah. Well, thank, yeah, thanks for that. And and certainly, yes, there's much uh, cause for sophists to generate income from arguing these points endlessly. So I find a big part of this dialogue, the philobus, is actually about memory. And maybe it is a case of establishing principles in memory. And so instead of just arguing things endlessly, arriving at some conclusions, and I'll just maybe read that bit, Darren, that you referred to, and then we'll go to Steve. I have this bit on the screen here from 16C to 17A. So I'll just read this because it it starts with that proposition again, that there is no thing that in itself is one thing. This is the part really talks about. So I'll read this. For everything in any field of art that has ever been discovered has come to light because of this. It is a gift of the gods to men, or so it seems to me, hurled down from heaven by some Prometheus along with the most dazzling fire. And the people of old, superior to us, and living in closer proximity to the gods, have bequeathed us this tale, that whatever is said to be consists of one and many, having in its nature limit and unlimitedness. Since this is the structure of things, we have to assume that there is in each case always one form for every one of them, and we must search for it as we will indeed find it there. And once we have grasped it, we must look for two, as the case would have it, or if not, for three or some other number. And we must treat every one of those further unities in the same way, until it is not only established of the original unit that it is one, many and unlimited, but also how many kinds it is. For we must not grant the form of the unlimited to the plurality before we know the exact number of every plurality that lies between the unlimited and the one. Only then is it permitted to release each kind of unity into the unlimited and let it go. The gods, as I said, have left us this legacy of how to inquire and learn and teach one another. But nowadays the clever ones among us make one haphazardly and many faster or slower than they should. They go straight from the one to the unlimited and omit the intermediates. It is these, however, that make all the difference as to whether we are engaged with each other in dialectical or only in heuristic discourse. Lots of interesting themes in here. Uh, I find particularly interesting the idea of finding the exact number of every, of every plurality that lies between the unlimited and the one. It's almost like this uh, method of finding all of the fractions 
if we find all of the fractions in the totality of the thing, and we're sure that that's the totality of the thing, then we're sure of the thing, the thing being the object of thought. But if we're not sure of all of those fractions, and we just jump to a conclusion that the thing is whatever we say it is, without examining all of those fractions, then we run the possibility of making a false conclusion. It gives rise to a lot of contention, a lot of a lot of debate, a lot of argument, and a lot of conflict. Uh, so this is really all about reducing conflict and increasing agreement about things. I thought I would read that bit because it really lends or adds more, I think, to this discussion. And so thanks for raising that, Darren. We'll go to Steve and then Fernando. If I would have a slightly different take on um, the discussion of the one and the many than uh, Darren presented. I believe at one point it's he, he mentioned it's like it could be a just a uh, endless uh, debate and you, you're not going to gain uh, true knowledge from it. But if you look at something like you know, the often used example of Gödel's incompleteness theorem. It's it's the whole idea that there is an ambiguity about what what you can know, and uh, I think the debate about the one, the many, is exemplifies that, and it's actually is one of the the main ways of going towards uh, knowledge. And what Gödel is, is saying is that mathematics can never be proved to be uh, correct. It's always going to be incomplete. You're you're basing any proposition you make, extend that to beyond mathematics. Any proposition you make is is based on some assumption. So that disconnect between those two things shows uh, the disconnect between oneness and and uh, unity and differentiation or exterminationism. So if you say you have something that's hermetic or poetic or beautiful music or beautiful story, there's some essence that we that people uh, get out of a, a, a beautiful piece of music or a beautiful story or a beautiful poem that's we feel a unity or oneness with the parts of the universes that we're coming in contact with. Whereas if you listen to a terrible piece of music or a terrible story, you feel the the separation or the the dissidence. So I think there is a, a lot of use more than just argumentative or sophist arguing for the sake of argument in in the examination of the limited and the unlimited. That, that's a good observation, and, and thank you for raising that, actually, Steve. You And you raised a number of points, too, that are worthy of discussion. Use the word dissonance, and there's actually talk about harmony. So Socrates actually talks about harmony and how to reach some sort of harmony. And if, if harmony is reached in, in discourse, then how do we do that? And I think what this passage from 16c to 17a that I read suggests is that we look for all of the divisions. And then once we find all of the divisions, we can agree maybe not on the full nature of the thing, because as you said, you know, there's Gödel's incompleteness theorem, there's Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. So everything will, there will always be an assumption somewhere. But if we can agree on the divisions, then we are a lot closer to this point of harmony and further from this point of dissonance. Um, so I think it was very helpful when you said dissonance, it brought that harmony into uh, 
into focus now. We'll try to find that section where I'm not even sure if it's in today's reading. It's certainly in next week's or in the um, the reading for two weeks from now, the idea of harmony. But uh, that is something very important and something very important to the memory function is harmony. So appreciate your raising that. So thank you. And we'll go to Fernando and then JK. On, on that little first section that you underline uh, right after that, it almost seems to me, you know, that the call to action isn't just to find all of the fractions, right? It's not all of the divisions. The call to action is that part where you underline, right? In each case, always one form for every one of them. So it, it almost seems to me that it sets up uh, more or less kind of like to talk abstractly is like Darren pointed out, right? In either way, it sets that up for failure. And to a certain extent, it almost seems to me to call to action just to examine every experience of life, right? To find its its own true nature in every single one moment, in every single one form. And it, it is kind of, it's interesting to me because what you brought up, James, uh, in terms of, and Darren has pointed this out too, the, the nature of this dialogue makes it so much more tangible than a lot of the other abstract dialogues. And this one seems to be to, to, to kind of bring that to the forefront, right? That, that little part that, yes, this is about tangible experience. And Darren's uh, little blurb that he pointed to on the Hackett also similarly jumped out because just shortly after this little section, when basically right after Socrates says his piece about, you know, about uh, the, 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 the youth, right? The youth are just trying to run away with the argument and, and to just talk, right, into, into nonsense. Right after that, Petrarchus says, careful thou, Socrates, because both of us are young, right? It's kind of, it, it struck me, it's kind of funny that it did, not very often that you see what seems to be kind of like a physical threat in one of these dialogues, right? So, so yeah, it, it, it just, to me, it just kind of jumps out to the, to the tangibleness of it. And I, I think to a certain extent, that is kind of, to me, what, what seems to me a call to action here mm. to focus on the tangible experiences. Mm. Thank you. And that, I think that's very helpful, the idea of the call to action. And I certainly see, like you, I, I see a, a very significant call to action in this dialogue. And that's that's why, you know, when I reread it after we talked about it first last year, I realized, you know, the call to action, I think, is just to understand our comprehension of things and the differences between things. You know, things. there's really nothing broader than things when you define thing as an object of thought. You know, it really encompasses all of our experience. And so how do we relate that experience to reality? And then how do we relate to each other in our comprehension and our understanding and shared experience? So I think that's the uh, that's a very key part. And as you said, a call to action. So thank you. JK, your thoughts? Yeah, I was wondering if this is a, an ontological uh, issue, the, uh, the uh, one and the many, because we, uh, the, you know, we live in a, a world that... Um, of limited objects and so forth. And we rely on those objects to define who we are, but we are constantly doing that in this um, effort to um, arrive at the one thing that would define who we are, but we're, we exist in, in the flow of a time. So this, if, this, if time is, again, if you think of a time as infinite movement, then you would never be able to arrive at the, at the one, the ultimate one, but you will always, strive to try to define yourself ontologically by the ultimate one, which you can never arrive at. 
I mean, that's just, just the nature of our existence, right? We are driven by our desire for possession, to have, to be, and we we act in uh, in this kind of um, process of being, but we never never arrive at the the ultimate being, and so there is the you know that's the problem of the one and the many, and you can never really um, you're completely uh, fulfilled, except only temporarily, but not uh, definitely. Yeah, that's a, an interesting thought and path of logic that uh, we're maybe searching for a unity, but if we are part of that unity ourselves, we'll never fully discover that unity because we're part of the unity. So how can we discover ourselves when we're always redefining ourselves? Maybe it's Maybe that's the kind of a parallel to the quantum observer effect. You know, once you observe something, the, the moment you observe something, you change it. That includes yourself. As soon as you observe yourself, you change yourself. So what you described there kind of brings me back to this part, which I, I think um, Federico may have raised as well. Uh, and we, we can do this reading together. This is in 15b or so, where Socrates says, firstly, whether one ought to suppose that there are any such unities truly in existence, then again, how they are supposed to be, whether each one of them is always one and the same, admitting neither of generation nor of destruction, and whether it may, remains most definitely one and the same, even though it is afterwards found again among the things that come to be and are unlimited, so that it finds itself as one and the same in one and many things at the same time. And then he goes on to say, it must be treated as dispersed and multiplied or as entirely separated from itself, which would seem most improbable of all. It is these problems of the one and the many, but not those others, Protarchus, that cause all sorts of difficulties if they are not properly settled, but promise progress if they are. And so maybe we are looking for this unity. Uh, and by continually finding the common character of things that ties things together, maybe, maybe if you think of things as kind of branches of a tree, and then you're trying to trace things to the trunk of the tree, and then to the root. Maybe we can never get to the root, but we'll make a, a good way along the distance to uh, to reach some sort of consensus, at least to the limits of what we're talking about. You know, the beginning and the end, the past and the future, the limits of what we're talking about. That would decrease the the difficulties and the the disagreements, and increase the harmony. So thank you for that, and we'll go to Peter. Welcome. To your last point. Uh... It's been a few years since I read the, the Sophist, but um, uh, if I remember it correctly, there's a sort of discussion in the middle. For, uh, I guess the main character is um, the stranger from Ilia, which I suppose is a Palmenides follower of sorts. In, that, in, in the, those sections, I think um, in the middle of the Sophist approximately, they discuss the great kinds of ideas. Uh, which are essentially categories, uh, as you would find in Kant or, or Aristotle, and and those include unity and uh, or oneness, I guess, and difference. And I think the argument there is that these fundamental ideas, or as I I am now calling them, I don't think that's his word, uh, are inseparable or or uh, uh, impossible to to divide in a sense. And, and the proof goes something like um, for the one to exist, it must partake in existence. And if you have both one and being, then you have two and therefore difference and so on. So, so by that sort of um, 
dialectic, you, you arrive at uh, uh, several necessary ideas to constitute even one thought, as it were. Uh, and, and in that, that section, you're left with the impression that the ontological and the epistemological are, are impossible to, to separate at the bottom level of, uh, I don't know, uh, thinking. And I, I was reminded of that by our last comment. So I thought I should mention it, although I should also mention that my memory of this section is a bit murky. Well, thank you. And I like the way you put that, you know, in, in you, when you said the ontological and, and epistemological are impossible to separate. It makes me think back again to Time AS 28A, which I always cite, you know, that difference between the eternal change of state of being which neither admits of generation nor destruction there's no change there's no decrease or increase and that's not the realm that we live in uh, we live in the realm of eternal change which is the state of becoming as it's described in time s 28a and you raise the sophist too which is interesting because the sophist really struck me for the five essential forms that it presented so the five essential forms according to the sophist are that which is the same, the different, change, and rest. And as I think about those five forms, I think you could almost define a universe of things based on those five forms. You can you can get any one idea and apply those five forms to it and generate anything else, but you have to start somewhere. It's, it's almost like a foundation. You, you need the foundation and then our experience is built on that foundation, uh, but our experience is not in the foundation itself. It's built on the foundation. It's almost like we're living in a projection of something that is eternal, which which is you know what what uh, Plato says about the nature of time in uh, Timaeus. You know that that which is begotten cannot be eternal, right? So we live in a moving image of eternity, which is what he says in the Timaeus. And I think there's a lot of good physics now that that a lot of good knowledge of physics now that could actually apply to that. I know certainly uh, physicists like Leonard Susskind and Juan Maldacena talk about the holographic principle. You know, and I it, it is I think there's a lot of parallels there that um, that could be useful at least at least in our comprehension of of what they're talking about in these sections and what they talk about in the Sophist. So thank you for that. Maybe move on to this section here, um, 20E. I just wanted to kind of get the theme of memory here because it's going to feature quite a bit in our next session. So this is 20E to 22A. And I don't know if we would have volunteers to read the two parts, Socrates and Protarchus. Um, I could do one or if anybody's interested, or I could do both. Well, why don't I do both? Do, um, okay, thanks, JK. So Socrates starts, so let us put the life of pleasure and the life of knowledge on trial and reach some verdict looking at them separately. Let there be neither any knowledge in life of pleasure, nor any pleasure in that of knowledge. For if either of the two is the good, then it must have no need of anything in addition. But if one or the other should turn out to be lacking anything, then this can definitely no longer be the real good we are looking for. How could it be? So shall we then use you as our test case to try both of them? By all means. Would you find it acceptable to live your whole life in enjoyment of the greatest pleasures? 
Why, certainly. And would you see yourself in need of anything else if you had secured this altogether? In no way. But look, might you not have the same need of knowledge, intelligence, and calculation, or anything else that is related to them? How so? If I had pleasure, I would have all in all. And living like that, you could enjoy the greatest pleasures throughout your life? Why should I not? Since you would not be in possession of either reason, memory, knowledge, or true opinion, must you not be in ignorance, first of all, about this very question, whether you were enjoying yourself or not, given that you were devoid of any kind of intelligence? Necessarily. Moreover, due to lack of memory, it would be impossible for you to remember that you ever enjoyed yourself, and for any pleasure to survive from one moment to the next, since it would leave no memory. But not possessing right judgment, you would not realize that you are enjoying yourself even while you do, and being unable to calculate, you could not figure out any future pleasures for yourself. You would thus not live a human life, but the life of a mollusk or one of those creatures in shells that live in the sea. Is this what would happen, or can we think of any other consequences beside these? How could he? But is this a life worth choosing? Socrates, this argument has left me absolutely speechless for the moment. Even so, let us not give in to weakness. Let us in turn rather inspect the life of reason. What kind of life do you have in mind? Whether any of us would choose to live in possession of every kind of intelligence, reason, knowledge, and memory of all things, while having no part neither large nor small, of pleasure or of pain, living in total insensitivity of anything of that kind. To me, at least, neither these two forms of life seems worthy of, you, of choice, nor would it be to anyone else, I presume. But what about a combination of both, Protarchus, a life that results from a mixture of the two? You mean a mixture of pleasure with reason and intelligence? Right. Those are the ingredients I mean. Everybody would certainly prefer this life to either of the other two without exception. All right. Well, thank you, JK, for that. Here's where they talk about this idea of mixture. And what I found interesting in this, well, there's a few things I found interesting, which I underlined, uh, and maybe others have some other points that they picked up on. This idea that if you were living one pleasure to another, one pleasure to the next, uh, how would you gauge the quality of each of those pleasures if you had nothing else to compare to, right? So how would you know that one pleasure is greater than another or less than another? And how would you decide what your next pleasure would be if this is all you did, right? If you had no reason and no, no knowledge to help you decide. And this is where they bring in the idea of memory. And the idea too of future probabilities, you know, when Socrates says, being unable to calculate, you could not figure out any future pleasures for yourself. So I wonder what we think about probability and our own experience with probability. In the present moment, does what we do really involve calculation of probabilities? Does this idea of calculating um, really relate to our own personal experience? And James, I also yep. want to question yes. how much of the pleasure can we talk about without memory? Right. Yeah, so how much pleasure can we talk about without memory? And I, th I think that's a very good question. You know, how much? The question of quantity seems to rely on memory, doesn't it? Because how do we know what quantity is larger than the other if we didn't start with one quantity and compare it to another, right? You have to have that comparison in your memory to be able to figure that out, right? So I think that's maybe why Socrates 
talks about calculation here. And in the Republic, as I mentioned in the introduction, he said that calculation, knowledge of number and calculation is the first order of business for a philosopher. And here he's saying it again. And I, here I think it really connects to probabilities. And when do probabilities start? Probabilities start, in my view, in the future, right? The, the first probability is, is when you remove yourself from certainty and you take an action, you don't know what the outcome is going to be, but you have to have some basis to decide on your action. And you do that by some sort of calculation on future probabilities of outcomes, maybe. So I wonder what, uh, what we think about that. So we'll go to uh, Steve and then Janice. One thing struck me right off the bat about this part of the dialogue was that there's no um, concession to the idea that thinking and reasoning could be pleasurable. So the idea that that's a, uh, you know, a separate, you know, that, that goes to, to the your, your uh, definitions. So that's the one thing. But to address your question uh, about what part does probability play in, in our current situations uh, moment to moment and to me what the you know the ideas that i've read is about the bayesian uh, probability makes the most sense to me is like that we're using probabilistic systems at all time if we're going to reach for a glass we're making innumerable probabilistic calculations it's not done consciously at that point but it's still how how we're able to make the adjustments and, and reach towards a glass and actually pick it up. And for everything that we're doing, um, you know, the the you, we have blind spots in our vision, but we don't see those. And there's the, what is the word, stochastic movement of the eyes. And we don't see that either because the mind, uh, brain is projecting a, a simulation. And that's all built on probability. It's like, you know, it's it's like it's going through the blind spot, and you th you see the hand smoothly moving to the next spot, but that's because these our internal simulation is making a probabilistic determination of where that hand would most likely be, and it's projecting it. So, to your question exactly, I think that we are using probability constantly in order um, to exist in in the uh, physical world. Thank you. And, and your use of the word simulation, I think, is very helpful there. It's, um, I think we do simulate, I mean, at least in, in the way I think I think, uh, I, I think that I'm simulating future events, but it's based on my knowledge and memory of the past, you know, in similar situations, or under some circumstances that somehow relate to the current circumstances that I'm facing. So that idea of simulation is an interesting one. I think what you said about you know, the thinking and reasoning can be pleasurable. I, I don't think Socrates isn't saying that. Uh, I don't think, I think in this section, what he's doing is they're putting the two lives on trial and they're saying, we'll look at the life of pure pleasure with no knowledge. And we'll look at the life of knowledge with no pleasure. But that's not to say that knowledge cannot have pleasure. And in fact, in the part that I read earlier, he did acknowledge that a wise person can get not, uh, can get pleasure out of knowledge whereas a debauched person gets pleasure out of debauched things. So there's different, those different type of, types of pleasure exist, but here they're just putting the two lives on trial and they're extracting, they're, they're taking one out of the other so that there's, there's no, there's no mixing of them. And then they, and then in doing that, they're deciding that they, there has to be a mix. 
So yeah, I, I think that certainly thinking and reasoning could be pleasurable, but it's a question of what mix of pleasure you put into that activity. What they, you know, that question of ratio in the two, I think is is the key. And and certainly this the simulation. I think we we're always simulating the future, and in a simulation, I think a calculation is absolutely necessary. There's so many probabilities that you could face with all sorts of uncertainties, levels of uncertainty. You know, there's some probabilities are uh, greater certainty that they will happen. Some probabilities are very low certainty, but there's always probabilities. Um, the one thing about the future is nobody knows what it's going to be. So, so thank you for that. Um, very helpful. We'll go to Janice. Hi. Um, with regards to memory, I, I just think that like, for most of the stuff that we're talking about is, is a matter of perception for the individual anyway. Like you say, what we could determine is horrible, the other person could derive pleasure from that. That's that's common knowledge here. But I'm talking about the, the part about the, the memory part, like I kind of, when you're talking about different types of probabilities or simulations, whatever, which way you want to go, is just merely like some your subconscious and your conscious. They're like it's almost like there's two different types of, of memories. But at the same time, but because we have all these subconscious memories, I, I'm just really curious. I, I think it might be a little bit off topic, but where is it that our memories are actually being stored? Because our brain can't actually handle all those memories. So it kind of makes you think that there's a receptor or that one of many in order to receive that memory again. Like it's like we have to go outward and pull it back in, but it's done for us autonomously, right? Mm. Uh, that's kind of what I'm thinking in, in the sense of that. But again, the word philosophy is known as love of wisdom. So the fact is you can have pleasure wisdom and knowledge. Right. Which I definitely agree with that. Right. Well, and, and thanks. You, you raised the question of where is memory stored? And I think that's a very interesting question. Certainly one that I raised in the notes, you know, as we're discovering that the universe actually has a physical memory. Uh, we see that memory when black holes or neutron stars collide, they actually shake the entire fabric of the universe. And we can pick up those tiny vibrations now. And there's actually a story that I posted in the notes that talks about whether, you know, scientists are now closing in maybe on a method to find some universal basis of memory, at least of physical memory. But there's actually an interesting, you know, since you raise it, there's a point that we'll see in our reading for two weeks at 34a. Socrates says, so if one, if someone were to call memory the preservation of perception, he would be speaking correctly as far as I'm concerned. So it's this preservation of perception. And in that section that we'll talk about next time, they're talking about the soul. You know, the soul has a means of preserving memory independently of the body, right? So uh, if, if the body is not experiencing something, the soul still has the ability to remember that thing, which the body is not currently experiencing. It's just uh, the subconscious is what I refer to. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. This whole thing. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's like the storing of what some spiritualists will say is what we call the Akashic records. Mm -hmm. That's what we're determining the source is from. We know it's actually proven that, except that those have been, I guess, spiritualists or whatever. But mm -hmm. that's kind of what we're talking about. One central record of all things, then supposedly it's supposed to be within our DNA. So somehow we're able to pull and extract from that through our mm -hmm. DNA which has the receptors. Again, when you bring in string theory, right? That's kind of the same thing where you're able to extract from other 
entity separately all at the same time, right? So mm -hmm. that's my take on that, but thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the Akashic Record, you know, this idea of a universal memory of everything, you know, I don't find that so far-fetched when we think of the universe as a information storage device, because the universe operates with a law of conservation of information. So all information, whether it's physical information or information of what goes on in the mind, it has no place else to go other than the universe. So the, it is stored in the universe. And then it's maybe then a question of, how it relates or how it it uh, transmits from one part of the universe to another, uh, which is an interesting question. So, but I think certainly the the idea that there's the soul has a memory and then maybe the universe itself has a memory, and maybe that's why in Timaeus, Plato refers to the universe as the living thing with a capital L and a capital T, the living thing. So maybe the universe is not just some inert thing some sort of stage on which we are the only operators with memory. Uh, it's an interesting concept to think. And, I, you know, let's explore that more as we get into the other parts of this dialogue. I think it's uh, be very fascinating. And maybe just to put a little bit more challenge, the memory storage of the universe and the human being as like the presence could be out of time too. That's how we are connected with people or memories that are not, we think they are not here in this time, but time is a thing. So there might be other levels to that memory storage. That's huge. Well, we take from our, uh, I think believe in reincarnation only, but you do take your memories from way back then. So you might, that's why we have memories on the subconscious level, because we've already experienced them. We don't have to think about them. And, you know, there's, there's a lot that Plato would say, I think, that would correspond with that, the persistent theme that knowledge is recollection. And that came clearly in the Mino, and it comes through in this dialogue and a number of other dialogues, too, that knowledge is, is recollection. In fact, in some place, in I can't remember if it's, in, if it's in today's reading or if it's in next week, but he actually says, you know, that the soul remembered what it once knew when it was separate from the body. And then maybe that's kind of timeless, right, Eva? You know, the, the body is bound by time. The body doesn't survive forever, but memory survives forever. And then that gets into the controversy, I guess, with Plato versus some other philosophers. Plato says that the soul is timeless. The soul never dies. The body dies, but the soul does not die with the body. So I think that's something that we may want to get into next time as well, because it is fundamental to memory preservation, I would think. Where does the soul come from in each of us? And then is there a connection between the souls of all of us. So quite an interesting point, I think, that we could explore in the context of the words of this dialogue. So thank you for that. And we'll go to Darren and JK. So what I find interesting about this passage about um, a life of pure pleasure versus pure knowledge, other than, you know, it, it, I found it quite amusing, <laughs> especially uh, uh, Protarchus's responses at first to the questioning at first like why not of course <laughs> i would want a life of this pure pleasure but uh besides that to me what was interesting about the stretch of dialogue is that it brings up this concept of or or it slides in this concept of the good into the picture again and and so this actually comes back to the question you started the 
meeting with, which is, is there anything that's one thing on its own and nothing else? This problem comes into the picture through asking a question about something that has like real concrete relevance to all of us. Like what is a good life? Um, what does that look like? And um, so the thought experiment begins, he, he starts it this way, which is sort of a brilliant segue. He says, let there be, so this is just around the section that James was reading earlier. Let there be neither any knowledge in the life of pleasure, nor any pleasure in that of knowledge. For if either of the two is the good, then it must have no need of anything in addition. So if ne either of the two is the good, <laughs> emphasis on that, then it must have no need of anything in addition because the good was described as, you know, self-sufficient and, you know, it doesn't lack in anything or else it wouldn't be good. <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't know, like, I don't know what others or what James would make of this, but I think it does tie back into the theme that of the meetup that James started us off with. Uh, maybe another thing, just one more thing I'll say about this is that, so as I said, I, I said earlier how a lot in this dialogue, and I think it's interesting that this is, a, this is recognized or people believe that this is a very, very late Plato dialogue, maybe one of the last before the laws, is that there's so many echoes of previous dialogues here. So I mentioned some earlier, but another echo is how the good here is introduced in this mysterious way as like a dream <laughs> that Socrates had. So we've discussed this in previous meetups in this uh, group that, you know, this has come up at various times, how the idea of the good was introduced in the dialogue Carmides as a dream as well, about how, you know, Socrates dreamed that we had perfected all the sciences, but there's still something seems to be missing. And of course, the idea there in that dialogue, the suggestion is that it's the good, like we have this dystopia, we have all the sciences and we have perfect knowledge of, you know, of, of the workings of the arts and sciences, but like, is this world good seems to be the question that is haunting Socrates there. And here, you know, the idea of the good is sort of introduced in this like mysterious way through a dream he had too. And so maybe it's referring to that dream because <laughs> mm -hmm. um, he says he remembers this dream. So I don't know, like as a late dialogue, I find this so fascinating. I can point, I, I, I don't want to get us uh, right now bogged down, but there's so many other instances where like just almost every section here, it rings bells about previous dialogues, sometimes in a very direct way. So when he talks about measurement, you know, he's going to talk about how measurement is our salvation, which is exactly how he talks about it in the Protagoras, that dialogue, that we need to figure out the science of measurement, which will be the salvation. Like there's a very specific word <laughs> he's choosing for these things. I, I don't know what's happening here. It's a late Plato dialogue. Maybe we should actually be paying special attention to how like all these things are, all these pieces are coming together here. But um, and here, so specifically regarding this stretch, it would be the, how the idea of the good is introduced and how in so many dialogues, it's it comes through in this elliptical way. But here it also does come through specifically through this idea of a dream that, you know, comes up in Carmody's too. Good points on a number of uh, fronts, certainly measurement. You know, that theme is consistent through many dialogues. It makes me think again of the Theotetus, which I mentioned in the introduction. The question was whether man is the measure of things, uh, which is very central, of course, to this dialogue. How do we measure things? And are we the arbiters of, of measurement? Or is there some other universal basis of measurement? I think Plato uh, is pretty consistent in showing the flaws in thinking that man is the sole measure of things. And certainly we saw that in the Cradlus, we saw that in the Greater Hippias, we see that in a number of dialogues here too. You know, the, the whole question is about measurement, and and you know, to measure, you need to calculate. 
and not everybody is as good as uh, a calculation as uh, some others. So I think that's important. And then the other point you mentioned is the good, which that was just actually raised just before the section that we just read at 20C, where Socrates says, it is a doctrine that once upon a time I heard in a dream, or perhaps I was awake, that I remember now. And, and you know, I think he's saying that because he's playing on the theme of memory. He couldn't remember whether he was dreaming or awake. So this is this is a question of memory, I think. Uh, he says, concerning pleasure and, and knowledge, that neither of the two is the good, but that there is some third thing which is different from and superior to both of them. But if we can clearly conceive now that this is the case, then pleasure has lost its bid for victory, for the good could no longer turn out to be identical with it, right? So that was the question that started that discussion that we just read. And then just a little bit further on, the good uh, is defined as the most perfect thing of all, sufficient and superior to everything else that there is. So that's an interesting definition of good. And it makes me think of the Republic and the form of the good in the Republic, Socrates says, is that which gives truth to the things known and the power to know to the knower. So I think that was uh, an interesting way of looking at the good. Uh, it's this power of knowledge. It, it is not itself knowledge. It's that which gives us the power of possessing knowledge. Interesting thoughts uh, to connect the good there. Um, Darren, any further points? Yeah, so just want to respond to what you just said. Um, so the connection with the Theotetus regarding measurements and um, also this idea of memory. Like this is another way this dialogue reminds me. I feel like it just like we're all we're like almost going through all the Plato's greatest hits, <laughs> like one section after yeah. another here, one page after another. A lot of this also is based on how we originally re read these other dialogues as well. And so this idea of memory we see come through in the drama in this dialogue. So it's not just sort of explicit in, in their words, but they suggest to, I think both uh, Protarchus and Socrates at various points suggest, oh, let's repeat this, you know, for memory's yeah. sake, or, yeah. you know, let's repeat this point. So make sure like we, we're, we're actually in agreement or something like that. But this idea of repeating and making sure we got it right, it's it almost seems like frivolous in the dialogue, but I think it's actually a really important point because in the Theotetus, like what, what really struck me about at least the first half of that very long dialogue is that they really repeat the, their trains of thought like I think at least three times they're like they, they, mm -hmm. it seems like we have a solution but then oh mm -hmm. let's look it over again and I remember third time reading that re reading when we got to the third time they did that I was like wait again I thought we just solved <laughs> this problem why is Socrates making us do this again yeah. so I feel like that was like an echo of the Theotetus another way mm -hmm. it echoed um this idea of um agreement and uh, measurement that echoes previous dialogues is like there, there, there is a point in which I said, I have a quote here. I couldn't find a place, but Socrates says, we are not contending here out of love of victory for my suggestion to win or for yours. We ought to act together as allies in support of the truest one. This isn't the first, obviously not the first time we've heard Socrates say this. He says this in so many dialogues, but it's like Plato wants to cram everything in here. <laughs> like here's another sort of echo of things like it's, this especially comes up in the Lakeys on courage. I feel like that dialogue ultimately turns out to be about a kind of philosophical or intellectual courage, what that actually means. And so we see this here about the contention we see in philosophy and how we should actually you know, approach philosophy. So anyway, yeah, I just want to tie those things in together and how, you know, all those things also, you know, reminds me of previous dialogues again. There's just so much here that's mm -hmm. an echo. 
echo is an interesting way of putting it. And, you know, if knowledge is recollection, then the more echo echoing there is, the more knowledge maybe there is. But you, you raise a, a few points. They keep mentioning memory here, you know, the, that reference to dream versus waking. I'll just point out this um, in 15D, Socrates says, is it not best to start here? Protarchus says, where? And this happens a number of times in this dialogue. Socrates says, is it not best that we do something or do we agree to start at this point? And they, he hasn't talked about that point yet. So here he says, is it not best to start here? He hasn't said where here is. And so Protarchus has to say where? Like, where do you mean? You, you haven't said it. I don't remember you saying this. So I thought that that's an interesting device throughout this dialogue. It happens about a half a dozen times at least where Socrates will say something that he has not previously referred to. So that's an interesting device in this. And then another really interesting device I find is the character Philippus himself, who plays a very small role in this dialogue. He's brought in at the beginning, says a few things, and then passes the argument immediately over to Protarchus. And then he comes back in at the end again. But, you know, what was the dramatic motive in bringing Philippus in at that point? And why does Protarchus take over that that argument? I think part of it is that Philobus just really doesn't demonstrate the ability to remember. Uh, he just is stuck on this idea that pleasure is just good. And he, he's stuck on that idea because the name pleasure just implies something that is good. And he doesn't think about all the different pleasures and all the different probabilities in the future. Whereas Protarchus is more uh, willing and more open-minded to look at those things. So I think maybe that's the kind of contrast maybe that Plato is trying to take by bringing Protarchus in immediately to take over from Philobus. And then Philobus just keeps repeating the same thing at the end. So Philobus is kind of devoid of memory and Protarchus is exercising his memory maybe. So some interesting, interesting thoughts there. So how you describe Philobus actually reminds me of Cratylus, who in that dialogue we read last, last fall, like Cratylus just keeps repeating the same thing in an exasperating way. I'm like, Cratylus is just like repeating the yeah. same thing he said over and over. Like Socrates yeah. gives him all these arguments and then Cratylus just repeats what he just said like <laughs> at first. And regarding uh, Protarchus, how you just uh, describing him, I feel like, yeah, he, he does seem more, may, maybe the conversation shifts to him because like we see Protarchus actually quite kind of eager for like he taught, he says like, oh, Socrates, you can't leave us now. You have to, you know, take the argument to the end. It wouldn't be fair for you to leave us now. We're going to force you to stay if you don't. And all these sort of almost like <laughs> almost violent suggestions. Like the suggestion is like maybe remember what I said earlier about how like Protarchus does seem to come from this sophistic background because his father was like a great admirer of the sophists and all that. Apparently we saw that in um, the apology. So maybe Socrates like sort of detects that there is a spark of philosophy as opposed to like just argument for the sake of argument as, as opposed to sophistry in Protarchus. And like in so many dialogues, again, like Socrates is sort of doing in, in, through the drama we see sort of maybe guiding or edging or leading Protarchus or bewitching him into the philosophical life because he sees there's some potential there. And whereas, you know, Philippus just, is just too far gone. He's just sort of repeating the same stuff over and over. If I may, I just want to bring up um, mm -hmm. one more point about the good, which sort of ties in the, 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 the things we're talking about here. We haven't really brought up this point yet, which is how like the human being relates to the good. And so he says that uh, this is, uh, again, around the section we read. So hang of different numbers here. Is this 20? 20, 20D. Uh, uh, 20D, yeah. yeah. So he says here, we, I don't think we read this part yet. He says, uh, is most necessary to assert of the good that everything 
that has any notion of it hunts for it and desires to get hold of it and secure it for its very own, caring nothing for anything else except for what is connected with the acquisition of some good. So this idea of the good as a like, like a powerful magnet for us almost. When I read this, I don't know for other people, like what evoked for me was the Phaedrus, that dialogue on love and how that connection to the forms of the good <laughs> that we are drawn to is that connection describes as love. You know, that's, that's, what, that's what love is. It's a force that's like leading us to these ultimate forms. So I don't know, like, so it's like here, it's the good is being described as a powerful draw. Like the good is not some neutral thing. It's not like something that's just literally on a sheet of paper and, you know, you just follow the logical operations or whatever. No, like a human being has sort of a, it has this magnetic attraction for us, which is described in Phaedrus as love. And of course, the word philosophy, it means love of wisdom. And although it seems like almost everyone focuses on the word wisdom, to me, what's most interesting about that word is the love part, you know, if you don't have the love part, you're, you're in a way not doing philosophy. And the sophists seem to have a lot of reason and logic, but they don't have this passion or love or being drawn to the truth. And it seems like a lot of what Socrates is doing, and maybe, as I said earlier, what he's trying to do with Protarchus here is like, maybe he has a lot of, he can do logic and reason and all that. But what sometimes what people need is the love part. And so I feel like Socrates, all these dialogues is trying to bewitch people to fall in love with this kind of work. Anyway, I just, I just thought I'll bring that up connection too. And it's also a point about the good, which we haven't brought up yet. Well, I like that. And, and uh, yeah, certainly the idea that Protarchus has potential, but not love is an interesting one. I hadn't, hadn't thought about that. Thank you for raising that part about the good, that statement that we are all seeking the good. It's, it's as if we're born with that magnetic attraction to the good inherent in us. And we spend our life seeking it. And, you know, again, if you think of the form of the good, as Socrates put it in, in the Republic, is that which gives truth to the things known and the power to know to the knower, I guess that is pretty attractive and something that we would probably naturally want to seek. Um, so that then a question of, you know, how is that sort of constructed in us? So thank you for raising that, you know, the idea that we all hunt for the good. I think that's an important one. Yeah. Just quickly about that. So he says here, like in this, in this, in this dialogue, caring, he, we, we, we will care for, care for nothing, hunt for and desires to get hold of it and secure it for its very own, caring nothing for anything else except for what is connected with this good. Mm -hmm. So um, in, in the Phaedrus, of course, when we, we see when people fall in love with like certain things or people, like what was powerful about the Phaedrus for me was that it's not suggested that this is like necessarily a pleasant thing. It's like when we first fall in love with something or someone in the features is actually described as a very painful thing. Like we, our scabs on our backs start to fall off and, you know, we start to sprout wings, but that's a very painful process being described and we cry and, but it might like cause us suffering and pain. It's a thing we most want. So it's that contrast that makes it such a powerful point in the Phaedrus. And mm -hmm. I think here it's a, it's, it's an echo again of another dialogue here to Phaedrus about mm -hmm. how, you know, something that you know, causes a, maybe a lot of trouble, you know, the search for the good or the truth, but it's, it's, it's like something we feel like we, we have to do. It's like who we are. And it's like the thing we most want, despite the pain and the displeasure it might cause us. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. That contrast of pleasure and pain, which comes through in this dialogue a fair bit actually is, is a good one to make. And uh, again, it makes me think of the Republic, the prisoner escaping from the, the shackles in the cave and actually seeing the light and the light being equated with the good in there. And it was a painful experience for the prisoner to be forced back into the cave 
to deal with those cave dwellers who would kill him if he told them the truth, because they are so invested in believing in the false images that they see. So there's an, another example of maybe pain and, and pleasure uh, mixed in a, in a unusual way that we wouldn't normally think of. So, so thanks for that. And we'll go to Janice. I was going to talk about the parts I think Darren raised about the uh, why things are being so repetitive. I kind of put it in the chat basically, but the, back in the day, um, this stuff was done orally. Like it was orators that they weren't written, things weren't written down. So them having to be so repetitive was to help people retain the memory. So. Um, this is actually done in the Bible, too, if you think about with uh, Matthew, Luke, and whatever the other one is, all say the same thing. Uh, again, it's just, and, and, it's, and it's interesting that you say three times. I don't know if that's true for all things uh, within all these different things that we're discussing, but, but to me, it's just basically in order to retain that memory, you've got to say it multiple times. Maybe saying it differently, but saying the same thing will... Uh, Inspired that one person to retain that memory because they didn't understand the first way it was uh, actually said because we all learn, learn differently as we in the modern times we know we can learn auditorily or visually or all mixture of all three so to me it's just basically trying to expand and inspire the multitudes because not everybody's going to retain or understand that one particular way and when we talked about the we talked about the dreaming aspect um I think a lot of knowledge is given to us, again, because it comes through the soul subconsciously, et cetera, and then it's being brought through the light when we wake. So we can have most of these particular uh, knowledge pass through us while we sleep because we're not being distracted. Um, but again, as we go to bed, like even modern times now, we can go to bed and say, ask a question, and we might wake up in the middle of the night and have the answer because we can't see it while we're awake. But we can have it filtered through us as we sleep. That's what I want to say. Well, thanks. And that's a really interesting connection because that certainly happened to me where I've found answers in dreams that, you know, I was racking my brains during my waking hours and I, I couldn't find it. So, and I think you put it very well about the oral tradition and the repetition there, you know, because each of us has a different way of learning. There was that passage from 16C to 17A, which I read in the the line about how to inquire and learn from one another or how to inquire and learn and teach one another is what it says you know and so each one of us does that differently as you said and i think that's important some learn by analogy some learn by demonstration there's different ways of learning but certainly that oral tradition and being able to ensure that we understand each other i think is important and you know it's not that plato's against writing but certainly i think he points out in a number of dialogues the danger of writing when we're not able to confirm the intentions of the writer orally. So it's, it's something that uh, we can certainly come back to again, when we talk about memory, I think in the next, um, in the next episode. So that's a, it's a very good point. Thank you. Um, Steve. Just briefly, I wanted to propose a alternate interpretation of the good it would be very easily, uh, very easy to to put in uh, evolutionary advantage. In most uh, reality for people, what is good is, is what helps in their uh, survival. And um, you know the good that we're talking about or love that we're talking about is 
conceived as a good in the society of Athens at this time in history, where they had gotten some uh, military superiority over the surrounding areas. So, you know, uh, the philosophers were able to banty about in the streets and talk about this. But, it, uh, you know, if you look a few, you don't even have to look centuries, but you can look centuries into the future when, you know, uh, the people of the uh, plains of Asia uh, didn't have enough food. What was good for them was was invading Greece and Rome and Europe and different areas in order to uh, get the good of you know being able to survive. So, you know, I think the the whole idea that all people are going to go after the good is is uh, correct. But what what's the definition of good is also greatly influenced by you know, your circumstances, and then not just uh, biological, but also the cultural circumstances, to not to put too fine a point on it. Mm -hmm. A great observation and, and geographic circumstances, too, you know, so, but I think, you know, you raise an interesting point, it's actually an interesting, a, a good segue, maybe to, in our last 10 minutes or so, uh, to this part that I wanted to bring up, which is um, this kind of equation that, Socrates presents for the way the universe divides. And, you know, in that quest for the good, we can act on things that are good in the immediate moment or good for today, good for tomorrow, good for next month, good for next year. But the, the question then becomes, what's a more timeless good? Because what's good for us today in the long run might not be good for us. I think that's the whole purpose maybe of what Socrates is is saying in, in terms of the need of knowledge of calculation, because we need to calculate those probabilities in the future. If we take over the next country, uh, that gives us more living space, it gives us more resources, uh, maybe that's good, or we would think that's good for us. But in the long run, is that going to create enemies? And is that going to cost us more in the long run? than we gain in the short run. So I think it's maybe this part of that calculation of probabilities in the future that we have to continuously gauge. And I think, you know, maybe that's why I think there's a particular technological referent, uh, relevance of this dialogue to today, because there are so many immediate goods, maybe that technology, uh, you know, tempts us with. But then the question is, what are the long-term consequences of this? How do we calculate the the consequences or the effects of this? So, and that's where I wanted to bring in the idea of cause, just as we wind up today's session. Uh, and this is from twenty-three C to D. So, again, everything comes to be from a cause. That's what Plato said in in uh, Timaeus, and you know, I think that's probably our experience. Uh, everything comes to be from a cause. Uh, things don't seem to just happen randomly. So uh, Socrates puts four components in this uh, section 23c to d. He says, let us make a division of everything that actually exists now in the universe into two kinds, or if this seems preferable, into three. We agreed earlier that the god had revealed a division of what is into the unlimited and the limit. So immediately there's things are divided into two, the unlimited and the limit. Let us now take these as two of the kinds while treating the one that results from the mixture of these two as our third kind, 
But I must look quite the fool with my distinctions into kinds and enumerations. Protarchus says, what are you driving at? That we seem to be in need of yet a fourth kind. Look at the cause of this combination of those two together and posit it as my fourth kind in addition to those three. I kind of just put this as, as an equation here. In the realm of coming to be, which is the third kind, you know, that's that that's that mixture equals the combination of the unlimited, which is the first, and the limit, which is the second, and then combine those with cause. So I put that as a multiplication times cause, which is the fourth. So this is kind of the the way that Socrates sees this, and and you know, maybe this will drive some of the calculations that we'll see in in two weeks' time when we look at the next section, section of the philobus. Uh, but I wanted to highlight that. And then I wanted to point out, you know, again, in the context of cause, this section from 26E to 27C, and Socrates says, but now we have to look at the fourth kind, which is the cause, uh, as we mentioned earlier, in addition to these three. Let this be our joint investigation. See now whether you think it is necessary that everything that comes to be comes to be through some cause. Protarchus says, certainly, as far as I can see. How could anyone come to be without one? Socrates says, and is it not the case that there is no difference between the nature of what makes and the cause, except in name, so that the maker and the cause would rightly be called one? But what about what is made and what comes into being? will we not find the same situation that they also do not differ except in name? And isn't it the case that what makes is always leading in the order of nature, while the thing made follows it, since it comes into being through it? Therefore, the cause and what is subservient to the cause in a process of coming to be are also different and not the same. And so here I think he's emphasizing the order of time, that the cause comes first and the effect comes second. Uh, and I think, you know, I mean, that's that's my experience of life, um, but maybe we can find situations where that's not quite the case. I don't know. Uh, but something definitely to think of as we go further into the dialogue and and think about the memory effect, and particularly that order in time I thought was interesting, you know, that everything comes to be from a cause. So the cause is first, the consequence or the effect is second, and they're not to be confused. And so I think that's the point that uh, that's being made here. So. Eva? Yeah, I I just want to question like how much of a suffering was named or defined in the time of Socrates or Plato? Like is suffering in the cause or like if this was a culture that suffering was super defined as like maybe uh, an Eastern culture, how would it look? Because like there's wisdom, there's love, there's pleasure. But mm -hmm. I kind of have a feeling like, okay, what happens if things don't go well, but life is messy. Mm -hmm. So I am I'm curious if there is a an extra way of thinking through mm -hmm. suffering and what suffering is. It's a really interesting question. And I think. I don't, I don't know how it was approached back then. Um, maybe there was some element of suffering is just there all the time and cannot be avoided. I don't know. I'm just speculating on that. But it makes me think I, of what I understand or what I've heard some commentators say about modern philosophy is that a lot of the approach is 
that philosophy exists to reduce suffering if i'm if i'm putting that correctly but then then it would become a question of what is suffering compared to pleasure like where do you draw the line between suffering and pleasure or pain and pleasure right so each of us would have a different point of drawing the line between those and measuring them and so again it becomes a question of measurement and calculation and is man the measure of things you know is is some person's suffering different from another person's suffering so it's a very good question uh, i i don't know what what it was at the time but a uh, very good question but certainly you know the, the, this question of the difference between pain and pleasure is very much central to this dialogue so maybe we'll find the answer in in two weeks darren okay so this is going back to what um i think it was yeah steve who was talking about how you know although we might all go for the good people seem to disagree about it and people have different ideas about what it is i think that's true on a certain level um i did like your response though james about how maybe at a higher level or more universal level if we actually try to think at that level maybe people are just making the wrong calculations about what's actually good overall for everyone maybe they're just thinking about themselves or a specific group or rather what's good overall for all individuals so maybe that is the kind of calculation we need to make so people are just making wrong calculations when they think something is actually good but maybe it's not good for everyone <laughs> universally maybe the point is to try to find if there is anything like that i'm not i'm not even saying there is something that is good universally but maybe there maybe there is and there is and part of what a lot of plato says or suggesting is that we do maybe have this kind of yearning for for this ultimate good um but i i so i want to make add a bit to what you said about the, the maybe people are making wrong calculations is that there are also different kinds of it seems like uh plato suggesting or suggests in maybe some of these later dialogues is there's different kinds of calculation or measurement we can make so i think we saw this in the statesman and here's another echo so uh so in the discussion this week we talked about or the dialogue discussed different kinds of measurement there's a kind of measurement associated with just measuring the unlimited and where things are measured relative to each other like particular things are measured so you have hotter or colder faster or slower and then when he introduces the limited the idea of the limited that's a different kind of measurement that reminded me of what he taught i think it was a statesman or maybe the sophist but i, I think it was a statesman where the measurement is not relative of things to each other, but relative to some ideal standard and how when you measure in these different ways, you come to different results to different effects for our lives. And that was a suggestion, I think, in the statesman. To me, like when he talks about the kinds of measurement associated with the limited and, the, and versus the limited, it just like resoundingly echoed what we just read in the statesman, like, um, you know, last spring or last summer. So in addition to making regarding, again, tying this back to our interest in the good, Maybe people disagree because they're making the wrong calculations, but it could be just also a different kind of calculations. They're not, mm. they're just measuring things relative to each other, like who's better or worse, rather than like what is actually good. He also does talk about, remember in the statesman, that there are different kinds of standards for different activities. So maybe there's an ultimate good, but maybe that also divides into more particular standards. But anyways, just another last point about that, that issue about people disagreeing about the good. I'll point out that here in this dialogue, he says that anyone that in that passage I read earlier, he says that anyone who has a notion of it, there's a way in which I think maybe, I think Plato maybe does believe that everyone does already want the good, maybe. So this is a very, maybe Socrates way of understanding it. 
Um, and maybe where people go wrong is that just their knowledge is wrong. But I think, I don't know, I think Plato has more psychology than Socrates, though. Like Socrates does seem to reduce everything to knowledge that when people do a bad thing, it's because their knowledge, they still want the good. It's just that their knowledge of what the good is messed up. But I think for Plato, there's more psychology, too. Like we see it more and more in, in later dialogues. So the psychology here would be, I think, well, I could come back to the Phaedrus again. I'll go, you could pick up from other dialogues, too, which is that, you know, the Phaedrus sort of describes a kind of our position relative to the good and the sort of uh, maybe you could say an ethics of our relation to the good. And part of it has to do with, like he describes this process where you, we have to find something that inspires us to the good in the Phaedrus. Mm -hmm. Like, it's mm -hmm. not like we can fall in love with any random person on the street. It's like you fall in love with a person who matches you in a way and through which you can see truth, beauty, or goodness. And that's when you fall in love, or it could be an activity. It doesn't have to be a person. Mm -hmm. um, you find some object or activity where you, where you get in touch with the forms. And so I think a Plato does become more psychological or it becomes more emphasized psychological aspects. And the Phaedrus is a, is one of the dialogues about this, where maybe not everyone, the suggestion then would be maybe not everyone does have a notion of the good or really feels it powerfully until they actually find their match in the world. And I think some of what we see happening in Plato's dialogues is that Socrates helping various characters sort of discover, you know, through understanding the character's interests, what they seem to uh, care about in the world. Socrates trying to provoke them to care about the good, ultimately, uh, and, and enter a sort of philosophical life in a search and to move towards the good. So, yeah, just all just a response to what Steve just said about people disagreeing about the good. But maybe there's these different aspects in which people either miscalculate or calculate wrongly or else they don't maybe the latest Plato does maybe suggest that people don't feel the good equally strongly, at, le at least until they fall in love with something. Mm -hmm. That's an, an interesting point about the psychology, because I, I think there is psychology here in that conclusion that, you know, the neither the life of pure pleasure nor the life of pure knowledge is is good and that the good life is a combination of both. And that's psychologically, I mean, who could psychologically go through life just having knowledge, but no pleasure, and it's psychologically not sustainable. So uh, interesting point there. And I would just, um, you know, you, you said something that raised a point here, and it's something that I didn't, didn't cover, but it's actually an important point at 24C, where Protarchus has talked about a relative measure. I think he's used stronger or weaker as a relative measure. So Socrates says, you have grasped this rather well, Protarchus, and remind me rightly with your pronouncement of strongly that it and equally its counterpart gently are of the same caliber as the more and the less. Wherever they apply, they prevent everything from adopting a definite quantity by imposing on all actions the qualification stronger relative to gentler or the reverse, they procure a more or less while doing away with all definite quantity. And that's a very interesting thing about relativity of measurements is that there's always more or less, stronger, weaker, uh, you know, there's all these relative measures and there's no definite thing in there. And again, another reason for numbering calculation to be the first order of business for a philosopher. So. I appreciate that. And uh, we're actually running out of time. So maybe we'll let Janice have the last word. Thank you. Um, just a little quick little thing anyway. Sure. And we were talking about how some people may ask you uh, what good actually means. And I kind of 
uh, Lutzel in the chat where I possibly think that maybe one skew of that would probably come from something bad that actually happened to themselves. Um, and therefore, I mean, because this is uh, prevalent in today's world right now is, you know, someone did bad to you, well, guess what? You either choose to learn what not to do, but then there is the other side of people who will choose to do bad because of it and be even worse. I actually had run into some who thought I should know what it's like to feel like to be in jail because she has been in jail, that she actually baited me into a fight, which I did not do. Hmm. But that's that's basically what I think, is that everyone has, wants the good, but when they're shown such horrificness in their life at a young age or any age, that that can just turn, right? The, where, where they'll get pleasure of being cruel to someone else now because of what they actually went through. But again, this all does relate to perception, but the, but the reality is we face that problem right here and now. I was abused as a child, but I when I had my kids, I constantly chose there's no way I was ever gonna do to them what was done to me. And I just ran into this woman back in 2019. So it chose, wants me to feel whatever she felt because they did it to her. Mm. Well, they did that to me, so I'm going to do it to you, mm. right? So this, the thing of, you know, having been skewed is really mm. not something we actually can say because we really don't know what actually happened in a, in a private time in their lives. That's all I wanted to say. Well, yeah, and I, I can relate to that, actually. I can think of similar, well, not similar, but maybe some sort of comparable type situations. Uh, and some people do take pleasure from pain. Uh, there was actually, I'm trying to think it was one of Plato's dialogues where he talked about, he actually mentioned, you know, it's, we like to watch these terrible scenes of death and destruction. And I think it makes me think of, you know, driving on a highway when there's a big accident, everybody slows down because they want to watch the accident. Well, why do you want to watch that? What pleasure do you take from watching it? I think it's, it's maybe just in us that we, we take a pleasure maybe that we're not we're not part of that or something. I, I don't know, but uh, it is that interesting kind of paradox of pleasure and pain. I think that, uh, that we sometimes see evidence of, and, you know, I think I've certainly seen evidence of that personally and, and your, um, the, the story that you relate, I think is, uh, is one that uh, touches everybody. Yeah. It's, um, I was going to say that what we've learned today now, modern sciences is the pain, the pain and pleasure registers in the uh, dopamine pit, basically, and that's well, basically, that's we've always been this way, so we've always had the dopamine way back when as well. And they say, so then I just learned recently that certain things give you more dopamine, and that's why the addiction is so profound because when you do something that was illicit drugs or alcohol, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. It actually hits the dopamine maybe more at 200%, right? But then it brings you all the way back. But they want that more, that 200%, because naturally 100% is what you want, you'd like to have, but you can only sustain that for so long. And certain types of activities produce different dopamine levels. Um, like having uh, sex is 100% and can last. Uh, is the dip in the, like Wim Hof, you dip in that ice cold thing, well, that dopamine level can last you for three hours. So that's that's kind of where basically kind of saying the same thing in here, where the pain and pleasure argument is basically why it can mm. be considered the same because it 
can deliver yeah. the same dopamine release. Interesting observation, and especially interesting because it, it kind of relates to what I said about technology now and our assessment of pleasures, because a lot of technology is built to increase those dopamine hits. And we don't realize that it's happening, but that's happening in the synapses that I talked about in in my introduction. You know, the, the dopamine is, is a neurotransmitter and it's transmitting between these synapses and we don't realize it's happening. And sometimes we lose our ability to calculate probabilities as a result of that, that the dopamine hit takes over. And so maybe part of this calculation that Socrates is talking about is really uh, controlling our neurotransmitters and making sure that we understand what we're reacting to. It's, it's a good point. Very interesting point. So, yeah, it becomes like there are distractions and yeah. uh, because yeah. of, I, I just explained that with the views, uh, yeah. I've been going through uh, some sort of therapy like now to help, uh, but then they also talk about these different types of distractions. And I'm like, I stopped from going to these workshops. And I'm like, you know what? Yeah. I don't want to rely on these distractions because that's not helping me. That's not yeah. getting me to the root cause of yeah. what I'm dealing with as they are helpful in the, in the short term but they're not helping me in the long term basically what kind of what we're talking about in here right what's what's good for the short term the long term political right, right now governments are like we'll do what we can do right now and i'll i don't have to worry because i know some guy might going to come in he could try to clean up and he can't right yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's whatever we're discussing here is what we're actually living now absolutely yeah and i, I think that's and, you know, maybe I'll, I'll end on that point is, you know, that's the advantage of knowledge is that it allows us to calculate those probabilities into the future. And the more we can calculate or simulate of the future, to use the word I think that Steve brought in earlier, the better we are in the future, the more we are able to control our future, uh, as opposed to just being a victim of the future. So I think that's the the key with knowledge and and that ability to calculate those probabilities so listen, I, I uh, really appreciate this discussion. We've raised so many interesting points, as always, and I think we've set ourselves up well to delve into the second part uh, that we'll take in two weeks. And so we'll look in two weeks. Uh, we'll start at 27C, where we left off today, and we'll go to 45C. And that's really the part where they're looking for the second place winner of this trial they have between the life of of pleasure and the life of knowledge. They're looking for a second place winner. So we'll take up that argument or, or that process in the next session. And we'll consider more about memory. You know, we've raised a lot of important points about memory today. Uh, and I appreciate everybody sharing their experiences. And I think uh, we can build on that and, and really see uh, how Plato presents the role of memory in the next session, uh, section that we'll look at in two weeks. So I want to thank everybody for participating today. A great discussion as always. And I will end the recording, but um, those who wish to stay online are more than welcome to do so. Um, we'll just have a casual half hour unrecorded discussion on Plato, on philosophy in general, on what we talked about here today uh, or anything you'd like to talk about. So I'll, I'll stay online for the next half hour and I will stop the recording now with thanks to everybody and hope to see you in two weeks. 